Hello, and welcome to the latest Top in Tech podcast. My name is Colin Darcy. I am the Senior Practice Director at Global Council, and I cover tech, media, and telecoms. I'm delighted today to introduce Blair Levin. Blair is one of the architects of telecoms and technology policy in the United States. He's currently a policy advisor to New Street Research, and he served as Chief of Staff to Chairman Reid Hunt of the Federal Communications Commission during the Clinton administration. Later, he oversaw the writing of the United States National Broadband Plan under the Obama administration, so we are delighted to have him here today to share his reflections. Blair, welcome to the Top in Tech podcast. It's a privilege to have you with us. I just want to set out for you and for the listeners, the three areas that I'd quite like to follow over the course of our conversation. The first is to explore this question about whether the US can still do tech and telecoms policy, and in particular, what a recent Supreme Court judgment means for that equation. The second is then to look at the telecom sector more broadly and whether you think the US has got the right balance between investment and affordability. And finally, if we have have time to quickly discuss on any echoes between the situation we're seeing now and the markets that you saw in the late 90s, early 2000s with the dot-com boom and the dot-com crash, any, any echoes and any parallels that we should be exploring and thinking about both in the market dynamics, but also in the regulatory responses that potentially policymakers should be thinking about. So if we if we start with that first question, If you look at what's happening in D.C. at the moment, there's sort of two takes on it, really, I would say. You can either take the cynical view, which I think many in Europe would take, which is that Washington is stalled. It can't pass anything. Sclerotic. It can't do policy. Too partisan. The other other argument would be, well, look, hold on. The CHIPS Act pass on a bipartisan basis. And maybe not all these tech bills will, will pass Congress, but has there been a time when there's been so much focus and bipartisan agreement across a number of different committees towards the need to regulate the tech sector. I mean, as someone who was chief of staff of the FCC during the 1990s, when if we look back now, it seems like a time that things got done and you might sort of characterize it as Washington worked. It'd be great to get your perspective, not to answer right the second, but we'll sort of come back to that shortly. So let's look at the particular decision that I mentioned earlier. We've had this decision from the Supreme Court around the Environmental Protection Agency in the US, which the implications of it could be that regulators like the EPA, but also others, potentially the FCC, which you know very well, could be limited in how they are able to act and take certain decisions. The most obvious one that people are talking about with relation to the FCC is what happens to its ability around net neutrality should potentially the Democrats be able to fill the fifth commissioner's seat on the FCC. So I know you've, you've written about this and you've spoken about this recently, so it'd be great to get your view. So very simply, what does the EPA Supreme Court decision mean for the ability of the FCC to regulate net neutrality? So I'm going to answer that question, but I, I want to start by just saying that um, one predict, one's predictions in a moment um, may change. Uh, and you're mentioning my time as chief of staff. Uh, the FCC is an example of that. In November of 1994, the most powerful person in Washington, D.C., was Newt Gingrich, who had just been swept into office as the speaker. 
Um, he said, you know, I'm in charge now, and a lot of people believed him. And one of his top priorities was the el elimination of the FCC. 14 months later, in February of 96, um, the Congress passed the largest grant of authority to the FCC since the original act in the early 30s. In other words, what's happening today may look very different uh, in a few months, things, things can change. But your question is a very good one. The EPA decision basically had the court saying that the EPA could not rule the way they did because what they were doing was answering a major question that only Congress can ask. And they created something, they said it had existed before, but the truth is they created something called the major question doctrine and characterize it as giving power back to Congress, but the truth is it simply gives power to the courts to stop any regulation they don't like by saying, wait a minute, this is a question that the FCC can't answer. This is a question that only the court should answer or that only Congress should answer, but they didn't give Congress any new powers. Congress has always had the power to adopt anything they want. They've always had the power to veto any administrative ruling. So what they did was give power to the courts, but they gave power to somebody else as well. And this part, this is the part that's relevant to your question about neutrality. And this is the part which I think pretty much everybody missed because the general consensus in the telecom sector was this decision is great because it will, it will give us an argument in court to argue against any FCC adoption of new net neutrality rules. We will say just as just now Justice Kavanaugh said in his dissent in an earlier case, net neutrality is a decision which only Congress can reach. Here's the problem with that. If you say that it's a question that only Congress can reach and Congress hasn't done it yet, yes, you can stop the FCC from acting. But there's also a doctrine about state preemption, which is that for the Congress to preempt the states, it must explicitly do so. So if the industry is going to argue that Congress, only Congress can answer the question, but it has not done so yet, then they are implicitly conceding that Congress has not preempted the states as to net neutrality regulation. And that opens the doors to a number of states doing it. California has already done so. I suspect other states would do so. But here's the key thing. If industry starts to do things that violate people's political sense, but they can't do it in California, but they do it in, let's call it Texas. Well, my sense is <laughs> people in Texas are gonna to wanna to adopt the same rules as California. In other words, can the United States still do telecom and tech regulation? Yeah, but it may be that Sacramento is the center of where it's happening. Because if a state with that many people is doing something, people have to adopt their behaviors to comply with that state. And if California and New York and Illinois and some other blue states get together and have similar policies, it kind of tips the way regulation goes. There's a follow-up argument by industry, of course, the, the interstate commerce clause, we could get into that. But the big point I would say is simply, the courts are more powerful than ever, despite the conservatives saying that they're opposed to judicial activism. They are, of course, the most activist courts you have ever seen in our lifetime. And you will have activity at the states, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, we can we can chat about that. So it's fascinating for someone such as myself, who I started my career working in the European Parliament as a 
advisor to British and then wider European politicians at the time. And it's probably not appreciated enough in Europe that the US is uh, not a monolith. There is this diversity between the states and this this difference between federal and state levels of power. But it's that dynamic you described about states preempting uh, or moving ahead of federal legislation is exactly what is often the driving force for policy in Brussels. So you'll see the European Commission will often act because Germany or France, in the past, it would have been the UK, will have will have started moving towards setting up their own national frameworks. And therefore, the European Commission and Brussels more broadly will want to apply these rules across the whole of the EU's block, the whole of the single market. So it's fascinating to just hear that sort of dynamic a little bit almost in reverse, but uh, in parallels in the US. Yeah, no, I, I look, I'm, I'm going to step out of my lane of telecom tech and media regulation and just say, Overall, the way the government of the United States is going to go, if you look at what's happening in response to the recent Supreme Court decisions, whether it be the abortion decision, the EPA decision, or uh, the gun decision, a number of others, what you're going to see is the United States moving toward where the kind of the EU is. We'll keep a common currency, we'll keep a common defense, but more and more actual decisions about policy are going to be made at the state level. And there's going to be all kinds of fights about the power of states to do so uh, that will affect tech. One of the big ones, of course, is on, on abortion. There are a number of states that want to really crack down on anyone in their state, even getting information about the possibility of an abortion through pills or through traveling outside the state. And the question is whether they should have access to data. And then there's a question of what if Texas said, yeah, our people should have access to data. And California passes a law saying anyone incorporated in our state or operating in our state, i.e. Alphabet and others who has information, they're not allowed to share that with people from Texas. Well, we're going to be battling these things for many, many years. But the point is we're going to start looking a lot more like the EU in terms of that larger and smaller governmental jurisdiction authority. Can we just dwell a second on what you were saying around net neutrality where do you see this debate going now? So if the Democrats fill the fifth commissioner seat for the FCC and there is a push for federal level net neutrality rules again, where do you see that playing out? Because it sounded to me like the industry is between a rock and a hard place and they may not necessarily want to challenge at a federal level, given what you said around the dynamic in California and other states. But how, how do you see it? Yeah. No, no, I see it very much um, with them being between a rock and a hard place, although I would add that it is a rock and a hard place of their own creation. So if the Democrats succeed in getting a fifth commissioner, uh, and there's a significant amount of doubt about that, uh, as soon as they do so, they will start a proceeding that will take nine to 12 months, and they will adopt uh, something very similar to what the FCC adopted in 2015. The choice at that point will be whether the industry then challenges it in court. And my guess is that uh, that will actually be a hard decision for them because they would probably rather have a national rule. I think most industry would concede that there really isn't any economic impact of the kind of core three principles of net neutrality, no blocking, no throttling, no unreasonable paid prioritization. Uh, What industry is concerned about is in order for the FCC to adopt those rules, they have to adopt a theory of jurisdiction which gives the FCC the ability to do a lot of other things like price regulation and mandatory unbundling that industry obviously would be opposed to, though this commission 
as was true in 2015, is highly unlikely to actually adopt uh, price regulation or unbundling. The choice for industry will then be accept the national rule or allow the states to do it. Maybe they will feel like they can beat the states in court. I don't know. Maybe they will feel that the Congress has shifted in ways that make it possible for Congress to adopt a rule that is more favorable. Again, many things can happen to change the political dynamic. But look, we have been debating net neutrality for approximately 20 years. I'm going to give a very contrarian point of view as to its real significance. In 2003, 4, 5, it was quite meaningful because at that point in time, the average download speed was low single digits. And in that environment, there would be a real incentive to discriminate. At the same time, you had the ISPs interested in owning content, believing that they could make a, they could get a premium return on content by virtue of prioritization or of some other kind of non-net neutral activity. What's happened since then, for a variety of reasons, is we've massively increased speeds in the United States. And, you know, Ed Whitaker, the chairman of AT&T, might have said to Reed Hastings in 2006, if you want to do Netflix by streaming when the average download speed is three, you know, if you pay me, I'll make the average download for your guys 10 uh, and you'll have a big advantage. But when the average download speed is 140, very hard to give anybody an advantage. The incentives to discriminate are much less. So that's where I think we are. We've, in a way, structurally solved the problem that people saw 20 years ago. There is a philosophical question about whether you want to have uh, an agency with authority. Um, and that's, a, that's kind of a different question. But if we just look at the three core rules of no blocking, no throttling, no unreasonable paid prioritization, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of incentive to engage in that kind of behavior anyway. So I think the bigger public policy issues are things other than net neutrality, but it still captures a lot of the public attention in terms of broadband debates. Let's move into some of those other debates. I mean, do you see, forgetting the net neutrality element now for now, does the the implications of the EPA Supreme Court ruling on potentially for the FCC, does it have other potential impacts? Or does the same dynamic apply where you're talking about if the FCC can't act, then states will act instead? So I'm thinking about things like the Universal Service Fund subsidies and policies to ensure that people across the US have access to affordable communication service, right. which is a familiar policy that people around the world will see, certainly in the Western world, uh, that telecom regulators or government departments oversee. Do you see something like that being at risk uh, from this judgment? Yes. It could be that the single most important thing the FCC does is uh, implement the Universal Service Fund, approximately a $10 billion a year fund that funds a variety of things, most importantly, rural broadband deployment, uh, subsidies for institutions like schools, rural public health, rural healthcare facilities, um, libraries, other community services, as well as providing a subsidy to low-income uh, folks called the Lifeline Program. Uh, there are a couple of cases pending in some very conservative circuits where the people are challenging the ability of the FCC to raise the money, the $10 billion, saying that's really something that only Congress can do. They're making a slightly different argument than the major question, 
doctrine that the court adopted in the EPA case, but it's very similar. They're simply saying the FCC has jurisdiction to implement universal service, but the question of whether uh, of how much money to raise and how it should be raised is one that really only Congress can do. Congress cannot delegate to the FCC that authority to essentially put a tax on consumers' bills. And I think the spirit of that Supreme Court decision may well be adopted by the courts of appeals in this case, and that could cause a massive disruption. Now, the disruption will be less because Congress, as part of the infrastructure bill, put a lot of money into solving some of those problems. But from a long-term perspective, that would really undercut the ability of the FCC to carry out some of its mandates uh, under the Communications Act. So it has a big influence there. And that, by the way, is one where uh, industry is, for the most part, on the FCC side, because it's a stable system that they understand. What industry is afraid of, uh, and reasonably so, is if you overturn the FCC's ability to raise money in this way, what you'll replace it with is a bunch of states saying, okay, industry, well, if the FCC can't solve this problem of assisting low-income people to get on, we're just going to make you put them on at a very low cost, which is what the state of New York has done. That's currently in litigation. And by the way, there again, I think the state of New York is aided by the Supreme Court decision, though that would be a, a kind of a controversial um, legal judgment. So the big point is, I think it does hurt the FCC's ability to do certain things, even things that are friendly to industry. And it really takes power that the FCC used to have, turns it over to a bunch of courts, as well as to the states. So it's interesting. So we return back to that question I was sort of putting out to you, but didn't actually let you respond at the start was, can the US do tech regulation? If we look at the FCC or other regulators, actually, it's quite it's quite dramatic in some senses. The net neutrality, the FCC could could move uh, on net neutrality, but the the reason it might be able to act is through fear of states acting. Likewise, if there is uh, if there is change in the universal services fund, it's the states who may act again. And there's that balance that may actually act as a constraint on industry and those who are opposing federal level rules. That is that sort of balkanization of US tech and, and telecoms policy. So I suppose the is the conclusion that we're coming to here that federal level regulators may have less ability to do tech regulation, but the politics of state versus federal may mean they get to do something still. But actually, we will get to see the US doing tech regulation. It's just going to be lots of different types of tech regulation across the country. Um, I think ultimately we get national solutions either in law or in fact. And the, the reason I say that, um, uh, first of all, we, we talked earlier about the privacy legislation that is currently going through Congress. One of the big issues there is whether that presents a floor, but states can do more, or whether it represents a single national rule. And the current bill essentially preempts the states, but that's highly controversial, particularly from the California delegation because California has a tougher um, standard for uh, data and privacy. But the reason why a number of tech interests are supportive of the bill, even though it regulates them, is because they fear that California and others will adopt uh, state laws. Not only will you have a patchwork, but as a practical matter, whatever California and New York do 
will have effectively have to be uh, implemented uh, around the country uh, because it you know you you absolutely could have fifty different regimes, but it's really hard to do and it requires <laughs> a lot of complexity that the industry may not want to do. So I think you're right that that dynamic is going to drive activity. By the way, it's also true that what what happens in Brussels affects the industry. And if people think privacy is being better protected in Europe than in the U.S., that drives policymakers both in Washington and in state capitals to think that they could be doing things better. So there's a real feedback loop here, and we are in the very early innings of that. Oh, it's interesting. Again, without wanting to totally hammer home the uh, the parallels with, with Europe, the We've had an endless debate in the UK. Obviously, we've left the European Union now, but we had this endless debate in the build-up to it around how what we called gold-plating EU legislation, which was where we would have EU-level directives. And then what we would do is we would add a whole host of UK-specific rules on top of those uh, directives. So it was a minimum floor rather than a maximum ceiling. Uh, and it's that same debate that you're now seeing around privacy in the US uh, with regards to what you just described in California. So let's just move on to, um, you made a couple of comments before, Blair. One was about you talked about the increase in speeds in the US since the mid-2000s and how that's changed the game in the net neutrality debate. You also uh, talked about how if the universal service fund in, under the FCC's jurisdiction goes, and that could have quite big impacts potentially in the long term for rural broadband connectivity uh, in the US. And that brings on to a question that is foremost of mind uh, for anyone who sort of followed telecoms policy in the European Union. Here, uh, what we find is the industry complain there's too much competition. They look enviously to, what is it in the States, three or four competitors. In Europe, you have three or four competitors typically per country, so 20, 27 times three or four. They argue that the European regulatory system is too focused on low consumer prices, which regulators argue is a, is a sort of shortcut to ensuring that we get wide access and accessibility for consumers to the internet, which given we're in an inflationary situation at the moment could become more prominent and pronounced. And they argue as a result of that, what they don't have, unlike their US peers, who they look enviously across the Atlantic towards, what they don't have is either the profitability and the ability to invest at scale and at speed into their networks. So I suppose the the, the overarching question I'm trying to put to you here is, do you think the US has the right balance between investment and affordability. You oversaw the national broadband plan in 2009 to 10. And but but I want to line that then is that it are are the are the arguments right in Europe? Does lower cost lead to greater access? Because the US is famous for high prices. And we were talking about this before we got onto the podcast. So do you agree with that 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 assessment? Uh no. And let me ex- explain why um but I think it's a debatable point. And l- let me note that I serve as a Wall Street analyst. I also serve as a policy wonk at the Brookings Institute, and I sometimes wear different hats. Um, but I'm not going to advocate for a specific policy. I'm really going to be wearing kind of an analyst hat here and trying to describe what's going on in the world rather than try to make recommendations, though I, I of course, am happy to do that. Um, as a starting point, you should, it's important to understand that the United States started differently than Europe. The cable industry arose, interestingly, in rural America as a way of retransmitting broadcast signals. But 
um, when satellites developed in the 70s, uh, some people quickly realized that it was an opportunity to have a much larger um, set of potential channels. And so CNN arose and uh, Black Entertainment Television arose and a bunch of cable channels arose, ESPN. And by the uh, mid 80s, uh, there were cable lines going into most homes in America. And by the time the internet arose in the early 90s, um, the United States enjoyed two different wires going into 90% of homes. Whereas in Europe, multi-channel video arose really as a satellite phenomenon. So you didn't get that second wire into the home. So then the internet arises very importantly and very often ignored was in 1992, Congress passed the um, uh, uh, Cable Act, which both price-regulated cable, which I was part of uh, implementing and which fundamentally failed, but also required the cable industry, which owned a lot of the programming, to sell it to satellite, which made satellite rise up. And the cable industry, realizing that satellites had a better cost structure and a better regulatory structure, said, we need to do something else. And that something else looks to us to be the internet. And they got into the broadband business. This was the at home. This was also something called Roadrunner. And they began to compete with the, um, the dial-up offerings of the telcos. And then the telcos upgraded to DSL. And what you've seen since then is a certain kind of facilities-based competition. You can argue about how robust it is, but it's something that you saw a lot more in the United States than you saw in Europe. And that affected the regulator's position. You could not tell either the telcos or the cable industry, you must invest in fiber and you must unbundle and things like that. And so we fundamentally had that competition. Moving forward in 2009, when I was doing the National Broadband Plan, we were at something of a stalemate because the telcos were not really going to invest in fiber. They were just going to essentially market divide where the cable guys had what you might think of as the Nordstrom's or the high-end uh, store. And the telephone companies had what you might think of as Walmart or the low-end store, and they would just market to buy that way. Well, into that situation, which was not driving competition or investment, uh, Google Fiber arose, and that kind of kicked off a, an upgrade of the system. Uh, you can interpret history in different ways. I wrote a piece in the Harvard Business Review along with a colleague explaining how Google Fiber really drove a new set of upgrades, both by cable and telcos, by breaking what we saw as kind of a prisoner's dilemma in which both cable and telco trusted each other not to invest, but then were forced to do so by Google. But in any event, we now have a situation where the market is driving a fiber upgrade. Cable has upgraded. So we get much faster speeds in the U.S. But now I'm going to answer the question that you, you asked, which is, does that mean lower prices? No, it does not. You get lower prices at the high end. So people like me and probably you who want the best speeds, there's more competition to sell us 100 megabits or a gig. But at the low end, the industry is not going to price at a point that enables low-income people to get on. People who can't afford 30 bucks a month, the industry really doesn't want to lower its price to 10 bucks because then a lot of people kind of in the middle might lower the amount that they're spending. Prices are never going to get low enough 
to enable 100% of the people to get online. But as a matter of public policy, we both want, and I would argue need to get 100% folks online. And that's kind of the dilemma. But the big point is investment in high-end networks does not necessarily mean a lowering of price for the lower tiers. Does this become a competitive issue as we look to, as we're doing now, recording this podcast using uh, our computers, we're doing it from both California and from London, from marketing different parts of the world. We saw during the pandemic this shift to hybrid and remote working uh, that was already there, but has clearly been accelerated. If you have a chunk of the population who are essentially being priced out of an internet connectivity, that seems to me to have significant implications for both economic opportunity, but also the ability to maximize the competitiveness of the US economy vis-a-vis other other parts of the world. I mean, do you think that's a that's a fair fair argument? Um, I think it's a fair argument, but um, I don't think there is a simple answer. For example, if you were to ask the question this way, from an economic development perspective, what's more important, having 30% of the population using gigabit speeds or having 100% of the population online, but having a maximum speed of 25 megs down, you know, I would argue it's the first, not the second. Having said that, however, I think when we look at where the jobs of the future are going to, what, what skills are going to involve, they're clearly going to involve digital skills. So we need everybody, just like you need everyone to be literate, to have a really robust economy. You really want to have all of your workforce, not just literate, but digitally literate, and to have access to uh, broadband, both at their workplace and at home. So I do think it's an economic uh, issue. I would also argue it's a social issue. And from the perspective of government efficiencies, there's many, many things that government does directly in terms of uh, supporting people, but also other things which are quasi-government, education, healthcare, et cetera, which are increasingly going to be done online. And so you want to gain those efficiency advantages. You know, the United States spends more money than any other country per person on healthcare and gets worse results. Let's not go into why that's true, but we can't Long begin story. to deal with that unless we start getting make, making sure that everybody is online because that's where healthcare is going to be increasingly delivered. Same thing with education. Yeah, and I, I wonder if that's that's where we're where we're sort of heading. There is we've seen in the UK, for instance, that there is a big focus at the moment on investment in infrastructure. I won't bore you with the details, but there's a slogan that the government's been using called uh, leveling up. And part of leveling up was the idea of ensuring that there is sufficient digital infrastructure across the country. And I think part of the argument made there has been an economic one. There's untapped economic potential uh, across the UK that could be uh, could be utilised in the future. However, Ultimately, it's a social argument. It's about geographical inequality between places like London in the southeast of England and then other parts of the country which have seen less investment over the past 50 years. So it is ultimately a sort of social question that we're, we're talking about there. I, I think that's right. And by the way, one of the, you know, there, there's an enormous level of partisanship in the United States. But one of the remarkable examples of bipartisanship that went largely ignored was the broadband provisions of the infrastructure bill. Uh, in which Democrats and Republicans agreed, number one, we need to get networks everywhere. That's actually not that surprising since a lot of the unserved areas are heavily Republican, so you're essentially subsidizing uh, Republican areas. But there was also agreement on improving uh, the subsidy for low-income persons. That debate uh, did not become highly partisan. 
And in fact, a lot more money went to low-income individuals through that process than what the Democrats originally proposed. So it was a very interesting uh, process. I, and I think that what COVID did was it taught Republicans and Democrats alike around the country that we need networks everywhere, we need everyone on, and we need to do a better job of delivering public services over the internet. When you were at the FCC, there was this sort of these concepts such as the, the internet highway. We didn't quite know what the internet was going to become. We're obviously smartphones were not not there yet. There was an idea there was potential idea of potential applications and use cases, but no one quite knew what it would become. And in some sense, we're in a, we've been in a similar position in the last few years with crypto or with other aspects such as people talk now about the metaverse, whatever that means for virtual reality, augmented reality and all these applications. But we are now sort of seeing a, a crash around, particularly in crypto and turmoil in the, the public markets and elsewhere and restricted funding for startups in the tech sector. So I just wanted to get your sense from having been an influential, pivotal figure in US telecoms and tech policy during that sort of dot-com period. Just whether you see any parallels now between the feeling we're starting to get as the markets turn after a you know a bull market of, of several years. Yeah, I look, I think it is very similar to kind of the dot-com bubble and crash of the late 90s and early 2000s in the sense that there is a period of time where people can raise enormous amounts of money based on a narrative that says, you know, growth is going to double every quarter and we'll have an addressable market of bazillions of people and and all these returns to scale. And the narrative has an element of truth, but of course there are execution issues and everything else. And then, you know, the market shifts and instead of wanting a narrative, it wants a show of profitability. When COVID hit, there was a notion that everything is going to move online. And so you saw companies like Zoom zoom up in terms of their market evaluation or Peloton zoom up in terms of its valuation. And now it's all crashing back to earth. And it does it certainly rhyme. There's, there's a lot of differences, but it, it, it rhymes with what happened in early 2000. But that's not, to me, you know, the, the real economy is not that heavily affected by the fact that uh, Peloton stock is much lower than it used to be. The real question, I mean, you have these very substantial companies. Um, and, and if you look at the stock indexes, an enormous percentage of it is now a combination of Apple, Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, you know, Netflix, and a few other folks, companies that 25 years ago were not that big. So you've created this enormous wealth. And I think that those things will continue to be enormously beneficial. As as we are recording this, the big news on my feed today is that Amazon has purchased One Medical, which is a healthcare provider. That will be a very interesting and important antitrust battle because it uh, it involves a number of different issues that we haven't had to directly address yet. But my point is what's happening there is much more important than crypto crashing or things like that, at least to me. Yeah, so I suppose we have the sense that although valuations are down and share prices have have crashed somewhat, the proof of concept with video conference calls and companies like Zoom or you know big players like Google Meet, for instance, who could move into that market if Zoom presumably uh, found troubles or Microsoft indeed, that they're, they're here to stay. Um, yeah. and that that that's not going to change. I suppose what happened you could argue in the dot-com crash is that it, it allowed for a thinning out 
of the market and you saw companies that weren't really going to make the cut fall under uh, and others that uh, were stronger or you know were in a very nascent stage allowed them to emerge um, and basically dominate and create the the internet that we know today so there's a slight question maybe just on the crypto side whether we see some some sort of similar dynamic uh, to that the other the other sort of there and you know then and now question i wanted to ask is whether and you sort of mentioned that here about when you brought in antitrust uh, with the amazon example telcos are generally seen as a, a public utility a clearly a commercial sector but there's public utility elements of it which is why they are regulated as such People are applying a lot of those arguments now to uh, the tech sector, particularly big tech and certain functions, say, search. Uh, do you see that argument gaining ground uh, that the tech sector will f- see the similar fate to what the telecom saw before and be classified in some senses as a public utility? I think the tech sector will be subject to a variety of regulations that they're not subject to now, but I don't believe that they will ever be regulated as a public utility as people deeply steeped in the communications history and law would understand it. There are certainly, there are efforts to do that. There is a lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of the state of Ohio to declare Google essentially a common carrier. I don't believe it will succeed. Clarence Thomas, the Justice of the Supreme Court, has suggested that his decision in the Brand X case which essentially accepted an FCC view that ISPs should not be viewed as common carriers, that that might be an error, and that further, that tech might be a common carrier. And then you see legislation in Florida, Texas, and other conservative states uh, essentially making social media platforms common carriers, by which I mean they would be subject to non-discriminatory access to their platforms. There is a huge amount of uh, irony in this for someone like me, who in my time over the last 30 years watching this, the two things the Republicans seemed to hate most were the Fairness Doctrine, uh, which applied to broadcasting and required people to put both points of view on, uh, and common carriage for telcos or the net neutrality rules, now saying that while we don't think those rules should apply to broadcasters or traditional communications carriers, they should apply to social media platforms. There's irony in that. There's also some understanding of why that's true. I have my own point of view about it, but I think that the Texas and Florida laws do represent how certain people feel about it, which is that uh, they've gotten too big and they're too powerful. Now, I think it is interesting that there were at least three judges on the United States Supreme Court who thought that the Texas media law, which in my opinion clearly violates the First Amendment, should nonetheless be allowed to be implemented. I think the implementation of it would be very difficult. But by way of answering your question, there are going to be lots of different shoots that in the states, uh, in the courts, among ambitious politicians like Ron DeSantis of Florida to write a political sentiment that these companies are too big. But that's ultimately not what I think drives uh, the regulation. I think something like the privacy regulation is closer to what we're getting. But I would also say I think the issues raised by Amazon buying one medical are the kinds of issues, you know, a traditional antitrust analysis is Amazon is buying something in a market that they really aren't a player in and 
you know, where is competition being diminished? A new analysis, one that the chair of the FTC, um, when she was a law professor and even when she was a law student, wrote about, she said in her very famous piece, The Amazon Antitrust Paradox, that Amazon ought to be treated as uh, a common carrier. And uh, I don't think that's what happens here. I don't think that's what drives the analysis in that case. But she's also written about how you can't let these companies that control so much data get access to greater data. Well, that will be in this case. So I think you're going to see it in things like that. You're going to see it in the Microsoft and uh, Activision analysis. So that's where uh, there's a kind of relationship between antitrust and regulation. Which regime dominates, I don't know, but you'll see these issues rise up there. Yeah, it's interesting. You've seen both in on the European side of the Digital Markets Act, we've got potentially the Digital Markets Unit coming in the UK. These are both going to look to constrain the ability of larger tech platforms to buy up uh, other companies. There mm-hmm. is uh, There was a decision in the UK blocking Facebook, which then became Meta, from buying Giphy. Uh, the brand right. of GIFs, which was a sort of an early test case for some of this, and there's been a bit of to and fro on the appeals there. But it is, it seems that this the Amazon Amazon healthcare element is just a whole another level of that sort of flipping between what is a market definition and where can you conceivably argue that Amazon should be blocked from moving into healthcare? And I think that would be quite a difficult one to to push uh, legally. Well, can I can I can I just interrupt you a quick second? Because I think Facebook has just announced that they're kind of pivoting to be more like TikTok, very interesting way. And I don't know whether that's in response to market forces, because TikTok is graining in terms of attention, gaining so much, particularly among younger people, or it's a way of setting up a legal defense uh, in antitrust. Because if you look at the Facebook case, you know, there are allegations of market dominance in social media platforms. Um, this is a way of saying we're not really that dominant. We have to go where other people are going. And if you now compare Facebook to to TikTok, the, the analysis changes. So I think we have both changing philosophies because of the feedback loop between, shall we say, the EU, the United States, and and Sacramento. But you also have changing dynamics in the marketplace that that cause certain kinds of adjustment. And then that feeds into the antitrust analysis as well. Sure. And I think Facebook Meta will gladly point out the growing competition they're seeing, not just from TikTok, but also the huge advertising business that Amazon now have or Apple are developing and so on and so forth. Well, they'll gladly point it out to the courts and and to regulators. I think when they get on their quarterly uh, earnings calls, they probably won't point it out quite as dramatically. <laughs> it's, it's, you know... Um, as Charles Dickens uh, famously wrote at the beginning of uh, The Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. As someone who occupies as one foot in Wall Street and one foot in government, I'm highly amused by you know The Tale of Two Cities. And I'm not accusing any companies of violating any securities laws or even lying. I'm just saying that what they emphasize when they talk to Washington is quite different than what they emphasize when they're on their quarterly earnings calls as it should be. There just are a limited number of people that listen to both, and I happen to be one of them. Sure. I suppose it's in the spirit of out of every crisis comes opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I suppose just to, just to sort of wrap up a little bit here, the, I was just intrigued to hear that, you know, conceivably we could see a situation where telecoms operators in 
the US are not subject to uh, net neutrality requirements, at least at a federal level. But we could at the same time see large tech players increasingly facing uh, rules and obligations, possibly more at the state than the federal level, that are de facto similar in nature to some forms of net neutrality elements. So it would be a sort of slightly contrarian solution and outcome that we could uh, could find ourselves in in the future. That's right. So Blair, look, I just want to say thanks very much. I mean, that was a pleasure to, to sort of run through the past and the present and the echoes and the mirroring and the reflections between the two. And it's been a, it's been an absolute privilege to, to have you on. Um, so Great. thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And I just want to say thanks also to the listeners. I, I say it at the end of every podcast we do, but if but if you or your business or your investment are exposed to any of the, the US uh, telecoms and tech policy developments that Blair and I have talked through today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can find our contact details at Global Council's website at www.global-council.com or you can find us via the link in the podcast notes. So thanks again, Blair, and thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Bye-bye.